You're listening to Festival Grass. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Shanae. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. Fire Festival lawsuits settled between organizers and talent, including Major Laser and Disclosure. Bonnaroo announces lineup for upcoming digital edition, Virtual Ruality. Famed techno music producer Derek May accused of sexual assault. Taiwan just held an enormous EDM festival. House music pioneer Jesse Saunders sees festivals going back to basics in life after pandemic. Can we party safely again? Discotech may have the answer. But up first, white utopias, the religious exoticism of transformational festivals. This book here by Amanda J. Lucia, who is an associate professor of religious studies at the University of California, Riverside. Now, this book, I'm just going to read the excerpt. Uh, Transformational Festivals, From Burning Man to Lightning in a Bottle, Bhakti Fest and Wanderlust are massive events that attract thousands of participants to sites around the world. In this groundbreaking book, Amanda J. Lucia shows how these festivals operate as religious institutions for spiritual but not religious communities, otherwise known as SBNR. Whereas previous research into SBNR practices and New Age religion has not addressed the predominantly white makeup of these communities, White Utopia examines the complicated, often contradictory relationships with race at these events, presenting an engrossing ethnography of SNBR practices. Lucia contends that participants create temporary utopias through their shared commitment to spiritual growth and human connection, but they also participate in religious exoticism by adopting indigenous and Indic spiritualities, a practice that ultimately renders them exclusive white utopias. Focusing on yoga's role in disseminating SBNR values, Lucia offers new ways of comprehending transformational festivals as significant cultural phenomena. So before I go on to this other article that reviews this book, I just want to have your quick thoughts, Shanae. Yeah, I think it's a really great topic to talk about because we do see a lot of new age spirituality in festivals and in transformational festivals, but we also, you know, don't always take a step back and see like, where did this come from? Because are we, you know, it's that borderline of like, is this cultural appreciation or cultural appropriation? And I think that we have to be very careful when participating in these things, because don't get me wrong, anybody can participate, but just again, like knowing where this all comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And this is quite a deep topic, to be honest. I I mean, I was I was amazed to see a book like this that somebody um, has done this kind of research. I've been going to transformational festivals for a long time, and there's definitely a distinction between those and commercial style festivals. I mean, take into account EDC. There's there's certainly no real transformational. I mean, there there's plur values, peace, love, unity, and respect, but there certainly isn't what is the vibe that is at some of these exclusively transformational festivals. There's so for instance, Bhakti Fest is a yoga chanting festival, and it's really all about that. There's there is music and there's some parting, but it's really all about the yoga. 
and about the the union of that practice. And then there's festivals that try to bridge that with the party. Um, so for instance, if you were to take Bhakti Fest and, and mix it with EDC, you'd get something like lightning in a bottle. Not quite, but you get the drift. Now we're going to do a deep dive in this because I do want our listeners to understand the differences between commercial festivals and transformational festivals. But let me take, let me just read from this uh, other article here by uh, Jordana Rosenfeld. She writes in the High Country News to research her insightful new book, White Utopias. Amanda Lucia, who specializes in global Hinduism, immersed herself in SBNR communities in California, Hawaii, Australia, Nevada, and elsewhere, attending 23 different transformational festivals, which are large scale gatherings of people attempting to create enlightened selves within imagined utopian worlds. The festivals emphasize certain qualities such as kindness, inclusion, mindfulness, and the rejection of conventional understanding of the self, though they vary in the details of their utopic visions and in their acceptance of corporate sponsorships. But Lucia, who attends without hiding her role as a researcher, is struck by their overwhelming whiteness. What makes them, as Lucia writes, such safe spaces of white ethnic homogeneity? The festivals are intended to facilitate spiritual transformation, but do the participants ever confront their own investment in whiteness? If not, how profound could their transformation be? So, you know, we have talked a lot, Sinead, even recently in these past the past podcasts about festivals, specifically Burning Man, trying to increase the diversity of their events in, in trying really making an effort to be more inclusive and clearly all festivals should be this way but i'm wondering here why there is this <laughs> well i mean it's being identified that some of these transformational festivals that it's a white utopia so what makes it such i mean i can only give my opinion on this topic but i think a lot of it has to do with its marketing because when you target a certain audience you you know you'll get those people as your attendees and so maybe they're just not casting their their net as broadly as they should be and maybe they're targeting specific you know let's say high end yoga companies and and their audience and you know in California so who are those people and if they're predominantly white then your audience is going to be predominantly white so it's just casting a, a wider net and being more diverse in where you market and advertise your events and how you advertise them because are all of your promotional photos of your festival photos of white people if they are, you're going to get less likely that if a person of color is scrolling through Instagram and sees your festival and sees nobody that they can relate to visually, they might not even think about that festival, you know? Yeah, good point. She also writes here that when she solicited feedback from the individuals, uh, this is Lucia here, she quoted that many, and, and these individuals, meaning the expert yogis and the spiritual gurus that were at these festivals, that many had uh, vitriolic reactions and they objected to Lucia's acknowledgement of their uh, white privilege or practices of white possessivism and their existence within the structural context of white supremacy. Really strong words there, of course, and then I'm assuming that these people she was speaking with maybe felt it was a bit of a personal assault or an accusation of racism. And we know that that's a really touchy subject. And there are 
movements that are beginning now that are called anti-racist movements. So, I mean, I know that people are on edge about all of this. And and obviously these practices, they do come from, from the East. Yoga is an Eastern practice and was brought over into the West. And so I'm wondering again, like, you know, when we talk about all cultural appropriation, this cultural appropriation, that, I mean, there's this thing, there's something to be said about sharing in other people's cultures and benefiting from the practices but at what point does it look like we're literally taking them over, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing I just want to mention, you know, you said that those teachers and educators that were spoken to from the festival, the the talent of the festival, were offended by the questions. And you're right. They could be offended by, you know, thinking they're being called racist because to them they are not. But look at the lineup of those educators. Are any of them from the origins of these practices? Are they taking, you know, a famous Hindu guru and bringing them in to educate people? Or are they picking that celebratorial white Californian guru? To them, they're not doing anything wrong. They're practicing something they believe in. But if you're so open to love and kindness and these values that stem from these other origins, you should reflect on your offense, like how you feel offended, and then understand that it's not, you know, a direct blow to you. It's just explaining to you that this doesn't add up to people who um, experience this kind of racism and don't feel comfortable or don't feel included in these events because it's not to call you out as a person. It's to change the way that society is operating to be more inclusive. So if you are a transformational person and you believe in, in your higher power, then you would, I think, take that time to reflect what you've been told now. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. I'm going to finish off here by how uh, Jordana finishes her article in the last paragraph here in her review of this book. She says, these festivals with their reliance on non-Western spiritual traditions allow white participants to think that they've already addressed their own role in perpetuating systemic racism and that they've succeeded in unlearning whiteness by the time that they pack up their yoga mats. This kind of denial happens in all predominantly white spaces, far beyond spiritual desert gateways. Lucia models a way of seeing the embedded logic of whiteness in social spaces, an analysis her white readers would do well to apply to their own settings, whether they're attempting to create a utopia or not. Bonnaroo is hosting their virtual music festival, Virtual Ruality. This event will span three days starting at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, September 24th. Their production features a combination of archived sets from the past years and new sets from top performers. They also showcase a Sanctuary of Self-Love program curated by Paramore's Haley Williams, who will host discussions about mental health and diversity. I want to point out I love what they're doing for their programming because I think it's really important, especially with the topics of today and people dealing, really struggling with their mental health during um, COVID lockdowns and just the the new way that the world is operating, as well as suffering from the social injustices that we see on the news every day and that we're seeing through social media. So I think it's a really great program to have. That being said, what are your thoughts, Mario, on the rest of their production? I think it falls a little short, to be honest. We clearly see in other festivals do a lot more. And, you know, Bonnaroo is a big production. They've been around a really long time. They're run by two very competent promoters, Superfly Presents and AC Entertainment. And I guess I'm just, I was just expecting a little bit more, to be honest, Sinead. However, 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 I do like 
their sanctuary of self-love. I guess I, what I would say is it's okay to rehash content that you had, but you definitely need to add something a little bit more to it if you're going to make a big announcement. Yeah, I will point out that this event was free, so people didn't have to pay for the repeated content. But I think that unless it's announced well in advance that you're going to be reusing content, it's a bit of a letdown for people who were excited to experience this festival. On a positive standpoint, there are definitely some sets from festivals that I've been to that I look for specifically and listen to repeatedly. So if it was one of my favorite sets, I don't think I would be so disappointed. Absolutely. And also they didn't go into any 3D here. They didn't go into any virtual landscapes or any VR or that kind of stuff. So a bit, you know, I don't know, a bit lackluster in my opinion. All right. Famed techno music producer Derek May is accused of sexual assault uh, reported here in EDM.com by Jason Heffler. On September 8th, uh, 2020, Michael James, who is a former Detroit-based colleague of Derek May, shared a lengthy statement via Facebook that contained explicit allegations against Derek May, who is prevalently considered to be a pioneering artist in techno music. In his statement, it reads, Now, you should understand why it's taking so long for all of you to learn that Derek May has been raping and sexually assaulting women dating back to the 1980s. He wrote, I've been telling people about it since November 2019, and at least 10 people have gone on record publicly with stories of him engaging in rape, exposing his penis to women without consent, threatening sexual attacks, groping women, etc. He goes on to say, here's what I can tell you guys for sure. Every single venue Derek May has been booked at, someone has a story about his sexual misbehavior. Derek May developed a pattern that also involved using date rape drugs on women Sinead, if that's not horrible enough, the lawyer of Derek May, Kyle J. Dupuy, also posted a statement saying that the allegations that Derek May has drugged and or raped several women are patently false, libelous, and calculated to ruin Derek May's professional career. Going on to say that the accuser, Michael James, is motivated by a spat over royalties that he feels he is owed for Derek May's Strings of Life track. Michael James did compose the piano sequence that serves as a basis uh, for that Strings of Life track. Derek May then provided another statement here on top of his lawyer statement saying that the allegations made against me are without merit. I've spent my life creating, sharing, and exploring beauty. Women are a conduit of life to be respected and protected. This is how I live. Shanae, what do you think? I think um, it's definitely a touchy subject. You can't say that when you have people coming out and speaking out about things that have happened to them, that it's not true. At this point in time, we'll never, probably never see evidence against it. So you just have to trust your gut. If so many people are saying that this is the behavior that they've witnessed or have experienced themselves, we have to, we have to believe them because in reality, majority of sexual assault victims don't lie about it. Like they they don't tell anybody or if they finally, most people who go out and say that they're a victim of sexual assault, they're not lying. So I would say just believe it. And I mean, we can't say that Michael James hasn't announced this because he feels wronged for not getting his royalties, but it doesn't mean that what they're speaking up about is falsified. Right. I will back that up because what I actually learned when I was doing a little bit of digging is that when a female or, or anyone has an allegation of sexual assault, which may have been in the past and now is difficult to prove, 
what they do is they speak to anyone that she may have told or he may have told that time. And it's often the case that the best friends, the parents, that somebody really close to this person was told or had or lived through the experience with them. And so there's this corroboration of very close people. And it, it's very unlikely that someone would make up a story, convince three of their friends to back it up and then go on record and swear and swear uh, on a testimony and risking perjury if it wasn't true. So uh, certainly there are techniques that investigators use that definitely support when these allegations come forward. Now, the question is, you know, is, is there any actual hard evidence besides someone's word? I just hope the women are OK and, and that they get justice for this if it's actually true. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our Music Festival newscast and subscribe to our Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. Taiwan has just held an enormous EDM festival. Taiwan has not detected new local infections of COVID in 148 days. With such a positive piece of information, the organizers of the S2O Taiwan Songkran Music Festival were confident about safely holding a massive EDM festival. So the festival took place from Saturday, September 5th to Sunday, September 6th at the Taipei Daya Riverside Park. They had over 80 artists and more than 25,000 attendees. Wow, I, I want to go. I, why didn't I hear about this? I, can I fly there? It's, it's obviously too late now, but I guess we know where the party's at now, Sinead. The party's in the, is in Asia. I mean, we got we to gotta go to Taiwan. We got to go to Wuhan. That's where we're going to get down. I mean, 15,000 people, my goodness, that that's huge. 25. 25. Oh, my God. That, that is a bona fide festival right there. I mean, I, again, we I mean, we talked about Wuhan uh, weeks ago in August and, the, you know, Taiwan's been having and This is not the only one. They had another one. Didn't we speak about a different concert that they had? Um, anyway, I mean, they're clearly but look, they're 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 flexing and showing life is back to normal because they've done their job and controlled the spread of the virus. And again, they're 23 million populated island off the coast of China. So it's a lot easier to control in terms of the spread, I, I would imagine. But it gives us something to hope for, right? I wish I could go to a festival with 25,000 people. And I'm somebody who always hated crowds, but I definitely miss it. And I, um, I'm happy for the people in Taiwan who have eradicated the coronavirus. All right. Next up, house music pioneer Jesse Saunders sees festivals going back to basics in life after pandemic. Uh, another article here in the EDM.com news channel by Cameron Sunkel. Saunders is a Chicago native and he's credited as the originator of house music. He made history in 1984 with On and On, the first house music record ever recorded and pressed on vinyl. And then, of course, over the last three decades, he's gone on to have many, many other successful records. So the article here states many fans and professionals alike are wondering how the pandemic will affect the future of music festivals. And uh, Saunders didn't hesitate to respond, quote, I think the festival scene got a bit too big for its britches and will be brought down to earth when things get somewhat back to normal. What we have to remember as electronic music lovers is that no person, thing, club, or entity is bigger than the music. He goes on to say, I see things going back to the beginning where going out to dance and hear music were only just about dancing and listening to music. In Saunders' view, the marketing and business sides of electronic music have created incentive for people to be seen rather than dance and appreciate the art form itself. A break from festivals was a much needed reset. Events will have to go back to the basics. 
DJ booking prices had gotten way out of hand and consequently so did ticket prices. I believe that supporters should pay a reasonable price to enjoy someone playing mostly other people's music. If anyone should make five or six figures, it should be the artist singing the song, not the DJ. I totally agree. Definitely. I think that he's totally right. We put a lot of emphasis on the DJ's playing the music, but they are playing other people's music for the most part. I mean, obviously producers are playing their own music in combination with with other music, but I think doing a more down-to-earth event is definitely how our um, industry will survive. We've even touched on this. It's it's clear that it's just going to be forced upon festivals. They're going to have to be smaller. The larger festivals are, go- are going to try to bring back their massive gatherings, but that might not work out that well because of restrictions. And so they're going to have to be smaller. And and then we, we also mentioned uh, in the past uh, podcast that you know, you're going to have these small, scrappy festivals that are going to come out and do sort of exclusive things, hopefully safe, perhaps with testing or whatever else to make sure that everything goes smoothly and that follows the protocols in place. But what I really like here is that he's acknowledging as a successful DJ that he is, that things have gotten a little out of hand. But, you know, festivals are getting huge. Uh, they were using radius clauses to squeeze other musicians out of playing anywhere near them. So basically they were controlling the money that would flow into their festival and preventing it to go anywhere else. And I think what's happening is that that's now being phased out. A festival will be maximum 200, 250 people, so on and so forth. So I think this is going to be a great thing for artists. And I also think that you know, these overblown fees that, that DJs were getting are going to be brought down to a more reasonable, uh, you know, payment for what they're actually providing, which is, I think, what he's saying. Definitely, definitely. And I also think that it gives the opportunity for these smaller, uh, in quotation marks, smaller DJs to, to sh- come shine through because their rates are less obnoxious and well-deserved. Yeah. It's a good reset, like he says. Can we party safely again? We're already halfway through 2020 and we still don't see an end in sight to when we can party or rave again in the traditional setting. Discotech is a company whose goal is to make it easier for everyone to discover events, follow their favorite artists, reserve tables and VIP, buy tickets and even land on the guest list for free. This is all through an app that you can find on Apple's App Store or the Google Play Store. So now they're searching for the best way to navigate what the nightlife experience can be moving forward. They are offering features to let viewers know which venues are officially open. They have filters to specify if there's outdoor patios or different features within the venue because of COVID. And they even offer an optional contact tracing setting, which will alert you if you've been exposed one of the venue partners that they have, and then they'll recommend testing. They're trying to make it not only easier for you to find events, but safer for you as well. Obviously, it's really difficult for them with with all the clubs closed and and a lot of the venues closing and uh, still being closed, whatever. Everything's not going to come back as it was, but they certainly have the audience. They have the reputation. I think their main way out of this is to be a provider of safety and information as we navigate our way forward. So if they can do a good enough job 
to stay in touch with their customer base without losing them. I mean, we know that people can just delete your app off their phone if it's no longer of service. You need to do your best to make sure that you you don't have that churn. However, I think that they're going to be, as long as, like I mentioned, they are going to keep everyone up to date. That's super. Have you used this app? I've never used this app, but um, I might. No, I've never used this app, but I think it's really interesting. And I probably would have used it because I like making my life easier. 100%. All right. And lastly, Fire Festival lawsuits settled between organizers and talent, including Major Lazer and Disclosure. A Fire Festival lawsuit between the infamous events organizers and their scheduled performers, including Major Lazer and Disclosure, has been settled. In December 2019, Gregory Messer, a litigation trustee, launched 14 lawsuits against Fire Festival's partners in a bid to recoup losses for the event's creditors and investors who were fleeced in the operation. The lawsuit sought the return of $2.8 million in expenses paid to the artists and their representation, including Creative Artist Agency and New Agency. Messer and the defendants have now settled with a total of $360,000 in expenses returned. The bulk of the funds came from Paradigm Talent Agency, which represents Major Leisure and Disclosure, who were slated to perform at the Calamitous 2017 Festival that actually never happened. Uh, Paradigm's artists paid $1.5 million and have returned $225,000. Now, of course, as you might think or you might ask yourself, with all of this money having been lost, why is so little of it paying back? And from what I understand, Shanae, is that when such large amounts of upfront payments are made to these artists, there's actually clauses in the contracts which make them non-returnable if the festivals do not go ahead. Sinead, you probably know about Fire Festival and the fact that it turned into a huge debacle that Billy McFarlane was not able to actually even execute. What are your thoughts on the fact that basically the money got kept by the DJs and their uh, agencies? Um, I say get on them because this festival was so, so poorly organized and hopefully they had insurance. I don't know that situation, but if they didn't, then yikes. <laughs> they went through a lot of lawsuits themselves. And I don't think that the artists and DJs who were supposed to perform should have to suffer for that. Quite right. Um, now, they also did try to go after some of the influencers, such as Migos and Kendall Jenner, did return the fees that they were paid. So there was a bit more success in that case. But it's really interesting here that there are clauses such as this when festivals don't go on, that basically whatever deposit you made, however that large that deposit was, whether it was the full amount, is essentially non-returnable. I think that's the key here because really protects the artists in case that, you know, they they sign on to a festival without doing their own due diligence and not figuring out that, you know, this is, you know, this you know looks like to be a badly run festival. But I guess that's not their job. Now, I will say just a little backstory on the Fire Festival. There's a great documentary. Everyone should go check that out. It, the original creation was uh, an app that was meant to be a faster way to book artists for your festival and for your event. And that's really 
how this all began. And that's how all these connections were initially started. And that's where a lot of the funding was provided to was this app that was going to make it a lot easier for event producers to book the people for their shows. And so the concept of that was really great. And that was that was a standalone entity. And then Billy McFarlane, who was attracted to the fast life and to the attracted to the to the idea of having his own festival, basically siphoned money from that project and started creating this side venture, which no one really knew whether it was going to work out or not. And he had personal close friends that were also lending him money. And all the way along, if you watch the documentary, there were warning signs. It's amazing that these artists didn't know or their agencies didn't know. But I suppose if you're protected by a contract, that's the way to go. Smart on them. Yeah, I know. Um, I would say in terms of the warning signs, you're absolutely right. By walking, watching the documentary, you can see like the people close to Billy could see the warning signs, but that doesn't necessarily translate to them dealing with the agencies and booking artists because if they're like, yeah, here's your deposit, here's your money, it all looks normal to them. And they, as a DJ or an artist, don't really have a lot to do with the rest of the planning and really just show up to do their job the day of. So I think the artists in that sense, it would make sense that they didn't know everyone else. Yeah, you could see the warning signs for sure. And I think that having this clause in contracts, it happens a lot with large um, artists, but it doesn't always happen with the smaller artists. So shout out to any smaller artists, make sure you have these clauses in your contracts because the reality is by booking one festival, you're leaving another opportunity out and you're losing that other opportunity. So you should always get paid for something you've been booked to be paid for. Great advice, Shanae. That is something everyone should take completely to heart because you need to protect your livelihood. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector, so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye.